The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. There are some pretty uh, hard acts to follow, I feel like. I feel like I need to do a little dance up here or something to uh, kind of get your attention after all the fireworks we've seen today. Um, well, we're really glad that all of you are here. If you're visiting us for our first time, we're so glad you could worship with us on this Christmas morning and uh, just really celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, personally, and if you know me at all, you will know this about me, I love Christmas. Uh, of all the holidays in the year, it's my favorite. You know, I, I think a big part of that is uh, because of my mother. Um, she always made this time of year special for our family. We, in fact, tease her that she's like the Korean Mrs. Claus, you know, because honestly, when it gets to be around Christmas, she just goes insane uh, with the decorations. If you ever get a chance to visit my family, uh, my parents' house around this time, uh, you, you literally feel like you've entered the North Pole and uh, entered Santa's workshop. I mean, I think one year we actually counted that she had set up over 12 Christmas trees in her house, okay? It was like a forest in there, like a, like a pine forest of Christmas trees. Um, and I, I have these fond memories of just sort of gathering around with our family and um, opening up. Uh, if we could go to the next slide. Is there a problem? Okay. Uh, of opening up presents around the tree. And uh, that was in our childhood. And now as we're in our adult life, we basically get all of our extended family together, several generations, including our in-laws. And uh, can we go to the next slide? Oh, it is? Okay. Okay. Um, so we'll just go on and let you guys catch up, okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and so we, we basically gather the whole family together and have our extended family there. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy, but every year we even put on this Christmas play. <laughs> we, we do our own little pa- private pageant in our family. And uh, so, like, kids dress up as shepherds. And I think Judah, we put in a Panera garb- uh, a grocery bag and had him be a sheep one year and stuff like that. Um, And so uh, it shouldn't surprise you that my first child, Joy, uh, we we named her Joy, you know. And our second child, we named Noel. So it's Joy Noel. And so when Betty was pregnant with our third child, uh, Luke, uh, all the people in our church, what was our church at that time were taking bets on what we're going to name our third child, you know. So they were figuring if it was actually going to be a son, that we would name him Emmanuel. And if it was going to be a girl, the bet was on Holly, okay? Uh, there was even someone in that church that joked that we were going to name him Santa, okay? But uh, actually, so as you know, we didn't continue the Christmas theme. We ended up naming him Luke, and I think he's praising God for that right now, that that was the name that we gave him. Um, I don't know, maybe you have fond memories of Christmas as well. Uh, And I think we ought to cherish moments like that. But I also want to say that Christmas is ultimately not about dinner with family and friends 
or opening gifts around a Christmas tree or making snowmen and drinking hot chocolate. I mean, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. These are, these are great feelings to have around Christmas time. But as believers in Jesus, we celebrate for another reason, don't we? Because Christmas is about Jesus, remembering and celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through Christmas, we renew a heart of awe of what God has done almost 2,000 years ago when he sent his only son to become one of us so that we can have a relationship with him. During this Advent season, we've been using this theme, God Made Visible. And the reason why we chose this theme is because we acknowledge that living in this life, we often struggle with this sense of trying to know this God who is invisible, who is spirit, who we, even the Bible itself will tell us we cannot see with our own eyes, and yet we're invited into a relationship with this invisible being. But one of the things that we find in the pages of the Bible is that God demonstrated this amazing act of reaching out to us when he, this spiritual, invisible God, became a human being like us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so in the form of his son, God walked among us. God took on flesh and blood so that we can actually see God with our own eyes in the form of a human being in the person of Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. And the passage we heard in the reading this morning, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In the first message of the Advent series, we looked at the at times the confusion and the disappointment that we feel when we feel that God doesn't seem present or, or even when he doesn't seem to pull through for us, when we ask some things of him and he doesn't seem to answer. And we saw that in the picture of Jesus, we saw someone who demonstrated for us a life of humble obedience, following the Father without forcing his hand, and making demands that say, if you love me, you would do this for me. In other words, Jesus showed us what a life of faith looks like, to know and trust that God is there always. He is ever-present in our lives. Last week, Pastor Peter talked about how we often can put God into a box of our own expectations and assumptions of what he is like or what he ought to be like. But through Jesus, we see the picture of a God that challenges those preconceptions and those ideas. Again, these themes that he is there for us, he is near to us, and he is intimately wanting a relationship with us. In Prince, Prince Caspian, the second book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, there is this one of the main characters in this uh, Pevensey family is named Lucy. And she is reunited with Aslan, who is this great lion who represents Jesus Christ in that series. And so they rediscover each other in the forest and they had this great emotional reunion and then they have this brief and interesting conversation with one another. And Aslan says to Lucy, welcome child. And Lucy responds, Aslan, you are bigger. And Aslan replies, that is because you are older, little one. And then Lucy responds to that, not because you are, 
<laughs> and Aslan says this interesting line, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that interesting? Lewis's point is this, that all of us start with a picture of God that is too small. What he is like, what he is capable of. And the more that we come to know this God, the more that we spiritually grow, what Lewis is suggesting is the bigger our view of God will become as we come to understand the awesomeness of the God that we worship. The Gospel of John begins with these words in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the chapter goes on. It's very clear that he keeps talking about the Word, the Word, the Word. And it's probably one of the most pressing questions in the first chapter of the gospel is, who is this word that he keeps referring to? And it becomes clear that he's talking about Jesus. But then the question arises, then why doesn't he just call Jesus Jesus? Why, why does he have to call him the word in this strange code? Well, I think what John is doing is this. In the Old Testament, whenever we encounter this idea of God's word going out, it is quite often related to this message of God as a God who wants to communicate with his people, a God who reveals himself so that he is known among us. And so what John seems to be saying is, in the person of Jesus Christ, we find the greatest revelation that God has offered to humankind. In essence, it is his ultimate word, or his ultimate revealing of himself to humanity. That's why he calls Jesus the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, the passage that Pastor Peter unpacked last week. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also, also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, just as God revealed himself in the Old Testament, now in our age, God reveals himself through his Son through his son. John chapter 14 verse 6 to 9, Jesus testifies of this in his own words. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is a really interesting conversation that happens between Jesus and his disciples. Basically, he's talking about knowing the Father and Philip utterly clueless to the things that Jesus is saying. is saying, that would be really great if you could show us God, our Heavenly Father. If you show us the Father, that would be enough for us. We, you know, that's, that's everything. And Jesus just says to him, um, why do you even need to know? Why do you even have to ask to see the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father and I are one. I and God, in other words. 
In verses 4 to 5 and 9 to 11 of John 1, we find these further descriptions of Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. By calling Jesus the light, it highlights the fact that Jesus came to show us the way to God. The message to us is that all of us without God and his revelation are living in a world of darkness, like blind people fumbling in darkness. And what the message of the Bible is, is none of us knows how to find the truth unless God reveals it to us. And in Jesus we find the ultimate truth of God. We're all seeking for meaning in this life. We're all trying to understand the purpose of our existence, and yet no one knows the answer to these ultimate questions of life. Sin has blinded our eyes so that we cannot find our way to even God himself. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's interesting in our day... uh, A lot of sociologists and other social scientists have recognized the inherent difficulty of doing hard data research uh, when it comes to human personality and behavior. Um, Anytime you give a survey or anytime that you try to conduct some type of an experiment in a lab setting, you are always dealing with the biases of the subject that you're studying, right? That when you know that they're asking you these questions because they're trying to figure out what you're like, everybody lies, (laughs) Everyone wants to look good, even if it's anonymous, right? And so they've been really struggling with, how do we really get the truth about humanity? And what's interesting is that in the 21st century, they've turned now toward what they call big data and all of the information that is out there on the Internet, particularly through uh, places like Google searches, you know? And what they've discovered is that no matter what you say is important in your life, uh, all we have to do is look at your search history, (laughs) to be able to learn a lot about what drives and motivates you. Uh, Seth Stevens uh, Davidowski, who basically has studied Google search data for four years now, says this. The power in Google data is that people tell the giant search engine things they might not tell anyone else. It turns out the trails we leave as we seek knowledge on the Internet are tremendously revealing. I am now convinced that Google searches are the most important data set ever collected on the human psyche. And when you search and mine that data, the stuff that you uncover is fascinating. Every month, there are over 200,000 searches for answers to loneliness, for example. Every month, 49,000 people search for the exact phrase, what is the meaning of life? (laughs) It's crazy, right? They're wanting their computer to tell them what the meaning of life is. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Google's autocorrect feature that showed up a few years ago, right? Which basically gives suggestions for searches as you type based on the most popular searches that you do. If we could go to the next slide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, autocomplete... <laughs> has given us this fascinating window into our fellow human beings, right? Say, wow, that's what people are always searching for? 
if you actually enter I'm 30 and I, it turns up some really interesting results. That some of the top ones, in the top 10, you find these answers. I have no career. I have, can we advance the slide? Yeah. Okay, is it still lagging a bit? Uh, okay, all right. I have no friends. I hate my life. <laughs> I feel lost. And they don't get any more positive than this, all right? I'm just, I, some of them I know kids are in here, so I can't share some of the real interesting ones that I really wanted to share. And you can replace the age with any other age you want, okay? And the results are just as depressing, okay? And I think what these Google search results reveal to us is how dominated our lives are by our fears and regrets and confusion. And that's one of the messages that the Bible comes to bring us as good news, is that Jesus came into our world, a world that is groping in darkness and looking for answers, in need of light. And he came to shine his light on us. John chapter 8, verse 12 says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It goes on in verses 14 to 17, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the one only of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think the most important and most amazing part of this Christmas story is it says that this divine word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, became one of us and lived among us. You know that actual phrase that when it says that word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is actually a very unusual and interesting word that John chose. It literally means to pitch a tent. To pitch a tent. In other words, it's saying, and the word became flesh and that flesh pitched a tent in our midst to dwell with us, to camp with us. Now, it's just a clear reference to the tabernacle of the Old Testament which also represented and symbolized the presence of God among his people. As I was looking at this, I thought, wouldn't that be so cool if I went around in this rotation and pitched a tent at every person's house at ICC? I mean, can you imagine how much better we would get to know one another if I were to do that? I mean, I... I might still do that, so don't be surprised if I show up one day and you see a tent in your backyard, you know? But you'd be kind of looking there and going like, wow, man, Pastor Steve is staying with us for a little while, you know? And you're kind of looking out there, seeing what I'm doing, 
and saying like, yeah, like what's he eating, you know, and then like, and uh, what time does he go to bed? And I suppose I would hope that you would invite me in for some meals when you see me cooking hot dogs on a fire out there. And then we would have meals together and I could see what you eat and what kind of arguments you get to as husband and wife. I mean, it's a fascinating picture, isn't it? This idea of somebody pitching a tent in your house and living with you and saying, let me really get to know you because I really want to be near to you. That's the fascinating and amazing thing that God did when he sent his son. He says that God set up shop right in our house and dwelt with us to show how incredibly intimate he wanted to be with us. That is why Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. Throughout history, God has been demonstrating his desire to be near to his people. When he led his children out of Egypt, he, followed, he led them with this pillar of fire by night and this pillar of cloud by day. And then he had Moses build this tabernacle, this great tent. And he basically said, this is like my house. And you are to light lamps in it. And you are supposed to put bread in there and bake bread freshly. And it's supposed to look just like anybody's house, else's house. And every time you put that bread into the house, it's this reminder that God dwells there. He lives among his people. And then later on, when they finally settled down in the more permanent house of Jerusalem and the surrounding Palestinian countryside, he had Solomon build a temple. And he said, this is my house, the place which demonstrates my presence with my people. But what the Bible tells us is that in Jesus Christ, God pitched the tent and decided to remain permanently with his people. And his presence would never leave them, but he would always be with them. In verse 14, it talks about this glory of Jesus, and it gives reference back to the Shekinah glory that filled the temple and the tabernacle. But what's interesting to me in the Gospel of John is it says, in the Old Testament, the way that that glory was displayed was through fire and smoke and light. It was actually something that terrified the people. They were afraid of it. And they couldn't get near to it, so everyone backed away. But in the New Testament, when Jesus appears, it says that the way that the glory of God was demonstrated through the house that Jesus represented was through grace, through mercy, through kindness. That's why when Jesus was born, the word of the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 14 said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The message of Christmas is that God does not come with a sword raised or with anger in his heart. He comes with peace and mercy, and grace to extend forgiveness to those who had turned their backs on him. And so Jesus represented that mercy and love in the way that he lived his life. We saw in the Gospels how even prostitutes and tax collectors and the greatest of sinners felt that they could approach this person who was holy and was perfect in righteousness and yet showed such kindness, such approachability such humility that even the worst of sinners, the dirtiest of sinners, felt that they could come to this Jesus and find mercy there and forgiveness. 
This is the message of Christmas. It is the message of God's grace being extended to his people. And that mercy came at a great cost. Jesus needed to take on flesh so that that flesh could be crucified on a cross for your sins and mine. And it is only through his sacrifice and what he did on that cross that enables us to celebrate God's mercy and his grace. Um, some of you know a few weeks back I told you that I had sort of unexpectedly called into jury, jury duty. And uh, that's my actual jury badge, actually. I was juror number 238, you know. And um, I... It was funny because the second I, I told everybody I was summoned for jury duty, it was this universal reaction like, oh, you know. And then everyone would give me their two bits of wisdom about how to get out of jury duty, you know, go say this or say that to them, you know. And like some of the stuff they were saying was pretty dramatic. Going, like, did you say that to the judge when you went on uh, for jury duty? But I, there was this kind of secret side of me that wanted to be on a jury, you know. And so I was actually trying to do my best to answer the questions so that I would get selected. And sure enough, I did get selected to sit on this jury. And uh, it was actually this criminal case. Uh, this guy, his house was raided by this um, special gang and drug task force up here in Lake County. And uh, so they raided his home, and he pulled in while this team was doing the raid, the SWAT team. And uh, it wasn't a SWAT team, it was a, it was a special task force. And, they, and he got out of the car and he freaked out. And he started uh, cussing out the cops, swearing them upside down, shouting at them, and pretty immediately they took him down and handcuffed him. And so he was there now on trial for obstructing a peace officer from performing his duty. And uh, what was so striking about this case was that one of the cops actually had a body cam on him. So the whole thing was caught on video. And so we watched it, and it was very dramatic, you know? Every other word out of this guy's mouth was a four-letter word. And based on it, like, you could see, like, I was trying to make eye contact with him as he was, we were watching this video, and he was just looking down the whole time. And... Truth was, when the jury first entered the room, he kind of made eye contact with us, and he looked really deflated because he was an African-American gentleman, and we were 11 white guys and one Asian guy, you know, coming in there. And I really think in his heart of hearts, he said, I'm not getting out of this, you know. And we were given instructions, and <laughs> the prosecutor showed that video again and again and again, I think for its dramatic effect. We were told the instructions from the judge as to how to decide on this case. And it had to be that he was in violation of a very specific issue about what it meant to obstruct the peace officer. And truth was, no matter how dramatic that video was and how much he was swearing at the cops, it's not illegal to swear at cops, you know? He, he didn't really violate the instructions, the specific law that he was being on trial for. So truth was, we really ought to find him not guilty. And I kind of looked at the whole thing and thought it was kind of a done deal. I thought we were going to get out of there after one hour. Uh, but there were a couple jurors in there that were really ticked off at this guy. 
One of them we found out has like every brother and uncle is a cop, you know. And another one was actually a, a police dispatcher, okay. And uh, so some of these people in the jury were like going, like, we got to find this guy guilty, you know. There's no way he gets off scot-free from this. And so what I thought was going to be a short couple hours turned to this all-day deliberation. And then they asked to see the video again. And so we, we went in there, and, and, and when the, I think when the, the, the defense heard that we wanted to watch the video again, they kind of got really discouraged too, and they had to get out of the courtroom. And we sat there and watched it on loop like a couple more dozen times. And after doing this all day, uh, you know, what was interesting was some of the comments that some of the jurors were making. They were going, okay. On a technicality, he might not be technically guilty of this thing that he was charged, but you think those gang and drug task force guys show up to anybody's house? This guy has got to be guilty of something. He's got to be a drug dealer. And they were going on and on and going, yeah, but I kept saying, like, we're not charged. He's not being charged for that. And then this other person came in and said, yeah, but when I look at the guy, he doesn't look sorry at all. And I feel like we need to teach him a lesson, you know? I was just, like, astounded at some of these comments that were being made. Uh, but I kind of felt it too, you know, feeling like, boy, I wish that there was some way that we could actually find the guy not guilty, but let him know how disappointed we are in his behavior, you know, in front of the cops that day and tell him you should never do that again, you know? Because um, I think all of us were kept looking at this defendant and hoping we could get some sense of remorse, you know, some sense of contrition out of him that would just make us feel better. So we finally were unanimous in our decision and everyone in the court was gathered again and the defendant is there and we read the verdict. We said we find the defendant not guilty. And when we said that verdict, um, the defendant for the first time actually moved during the trial and he put his hands in his face And he began to sob uncontrollably as tears began to flow out of his eyes. And I don't know why, but in that moment, I suddenly became overwhelmed with emotion that I had to sort of stop myself from crying as well. And it wasn't because I felt like so glad this guy's getting off the hook. But in that moment, uh, it was very strange. But what I sensed there in that courtroom was what God was saying was, do you know that that is you? You know, that is you. Um, and that whole week, I was there basically like this guy's judge. But in that moment, I suddenly became a co-defendant with him. And I realized, I know exactly how that guy feels sitting in that chair right now. Because that is the grace I have received from Jesus Christ to feel this guilt looming over my head and having to watch that video of what I did over and over and over again and yet at the end of it all being declared not guilty because of what Christ has done for us. Philip Yancey says this, I grew up with the image of a mathematical God who weighed my good and bad deeds on a set of scales and always found me wanting. Somehow I missed the God of the Gospels a God of mercy and generosity who keeps finding ways to shatter the relentless laws of ungrace. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. 
No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations. No amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools. No amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. By instinct, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. Grace sounds a startling note of contradiction, of liberation, and every day I must pray anew for the ability to hear its message. I just want to look at verses 9 to 13 in closing, and it says this. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, in order for us to receive that grace, we need to receive Jesus and to believe in him and put our trust in in him. It's not an automatic transaction, but it happens when we, by faith, claim the promise that God gives us of eternal life. And if we do that, if we receive that free gift of grace, then we can know that we have eternal life. Let's pray. That is what Christmas ultimately is all about. It is the message of God's grace reaching out to a lost humanity. And that is you and I, each of us, in our own way, fumbling through the dark, trying to find some semblance of what the meaning of life is. I kind of wonder what each of our Google search histories would reveal about the inner recesses of our own souls, the questions that plague you and haunt you. Uh, The message of Christmas is that In Jesus Christ, a great light has come into the great darkness. The message of Christmas is that God offers a hand of favor to people who are living in sin so that if we would confess our sins and believe in Jesus, that those sins could be forgiven because of what Christ has done on the cross. And I wonder if there might be any of you in this room that need to hear that message, but not only to hear it, but to take action on it as a step of faith and say, Lord, I want to put my trust in you. I feel like much of my life could be described like that, fumbling in the dark, stumbling in darkness. But I want to follow Christ and I want to know that he is my Savior, my Lord. If that is your desire, you can pray that simple prayer even this morning to receive him into your heart and ask him to be your Savior. And for those of you who already have prayed that prayer and committed your life to Christ, can I ask you on this Christmas celebration, beyond all of the family gatherings and cookies that will be eaten and presents that will be opened, maybe this could be a great opportunity for you to just dedicate your life again to Christ and say, Christ, I want you to be the one who gives me every sense of joy and comfort and strength and purpose in my life. And so let's just come before him whom we celebrate on this day as we give him all the glory and worship to his name. Let's pray.